take our Bibles now and open them to Philippians chapter 2. Tonight we reach um, another portion of Scripture that's really one of the most magnificent uh, passages that we read in the entire Bible. And this is not a, a Scripture that we would expect to read in this particular place. Uh, perhaps we wouldn't uh, expect to see such a majestic statement about Christ unless that were to come in the middle of a discourse that was building with tremendous anticipation. And so perhaps we would expect to see this scripture somewhere around 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is laying down arguments about the resurrection, and he ends that chapter in a mighty crescendo when he speaks about Christ defeating all of his enemies, and that chapter ends with victory in Jesus. And so we might expect that we would find this scripture or this portion of scripture there, or perhaps it might even be 1 Corinthians chapter 16, rather than the way that Paul ended 1 Corinthians by just bringing us right back down to some very practical issues. But this is not 1 Corinthians. This is Philippians. And this is a passage that's introduced to us in a very nonchalant way as Paul is discussing the subject of Christian humility. He's speaking about unity and about Christian fellowship. And so Paul eases in to one of the grandest portions of Scripture in the Bible, and then he explains to us and puts it this way, this is what Christ did, now you go and do likewise. Well, tonight's message is about the greatest miracle of Christianity. Some people say that the greatest miracle of all is when a person is born again, the new birth. And I would certainly agree that uh, taking a dead, spiritually lifeless, vile creature and turning him into a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and heir to all the inheritance of God, that is a miracle of simply extraordinary proportions. But this is a miracle that's even greater than that. And what I'm speaking of is the miracle of the Incarnation. This is about God becoming man. It's about God descending, the Son of God coming down to this earth in the form of a creature, in the flesh of a man. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. And we have to do this in the context of Philippians, in in, in the place that Paul puts this. And the purpose, Paul has a purpose, I should say, in putting this scripture in this particular place. Now, what I'm talking about here is really... Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And we're just going to study a small portion of this tonight. But let's stand and read a part of this. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start at verse number 5. Philippians 2, verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everyone who's come tonight. And Lord, we are looking at one of the greatest passages of Scripture that we have in the entire Bible, and Lord, we just pray that as we just consider a very small portion of this, that you would open up our hearts to your truth, and we might really see uh, Jesus as our eternal God. Bless in the services tonight, the message in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
that is the transitional statement from the exhortations that Paul makes in verses 1 through 4 to the example that he gives in verses 6 through 8. And Paul's subject here is about peace and unity. It's about thoughtful consideration of others through a life that's a life produced with humility. And the apostle lays down the principle here, and then he gives the greatest example of someone who actually lived out that principle. And this is what he calls the mind of Christ. And he's speaking about, of course, Jesus who humbled himself to become a man. One of the most remarkable aspects of this passage is that Paul takes a very plain statement of fact concerning Jesus, and he doesn't bring up the incarnation because there's anyone in Philippi who denies this doctrine, and he's not answering arguments because there are those in the church there that are teaching heresies concerning it. And Paul here is not actually trying to uh, defend Christian doctrine. Paul just makes a very clear statement of fact. And one of the amazing aspects of this is that Paul could do this so easily when this statement is being made within just a few years of the time that Jesus came to this earth and the event taking place. We're speaking here of a time only about 60 or 70 years after the incarnation of Christ and about 30 years or so before the, uh, after the crucifixion. And as we think about that, uh, we, we might imagine what would it be like if Jesus had waited until our time to come. I mean, what if I told you that if in 1977 that God himself was walking on this earth, and if I told you that God was born as a baby in 1994, do you think that I could make a statement like that without people attacking me from every side? And yet when Paul makes this statement, this is exactly what he's doing. He's just a short time from the, amount, from the time that these things took place. And he wrote these statements down, and he writes them very simply and without argument. How could he do that? Well, the answer to that is actually given to us in Luke, when Luke wrote his gospel account. He said, For as much have many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So there were people that were still alive at the time of the Apostle Paul who had witnessed this. They were eyewitnesses of Christ's life, and Paul could call upon those witnesses to testify that what he says is true. Now, the Philippians believed this because of one statement about one convert that was made in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says, And a certain woman named Lydia, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. So Paul didn't have to open up this subject in apologetics. He's not arguing for this. He states the facts. Now, we're going to look at a part of these facts tonight, and we're going to look at them, though, in an apologetic manner. And when I say the word apology, I hope you understand what I mean. That is a defense of what we believe. So what do these statements mean? Well, we'll start with this, that Jesus is the essence of God. In verse number 6, it says, who being in the form of God. And this evening, I want to talk to you just about that one phrase, who being in the form of God. Now, you don't have a lot of blanks to fill out on your listening sheet, and that's okay because you're going to need both hands on your Bible this evening. We're going to put uh, some of the scriptures up on the screen, but there are others that you'll have to look up. So how many Bibles do we have tonight? 
You need your Bible, and you might want to share it with someone who doesn't have one. Who being in the form of God. Jesus was in the form of God. Now, some would say, well, yes, Jesus was in the form of God. And what that means is that when he came to earth, he showed some characteristics of God. That he was able to do some miraculous things. Uh, Jesus could do things like quickly moving from one place to another. And so they would say, well, yes, he was in the form of God, but Jesus was not actually God. But rather, he was uh, a human. He, He was a being sort of like a superman. And he could do all kinds of things that ordinary people couldn't do. Some, like the Jehovah Witnesses, claim that Jesus was really an angel. He was Michael the archangel, and he was a created being that took on human form so that he wasn't really the God, but rather he was a God. And so they rearranged scriptures like John chapter 1, verse 1. They mistranslate it to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, and that's God with a little g. But the Scriptures really say in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's God with a big G, and that's John's statement that Jesus is God, and that he was so from eternity. And so when Paul uses this phrase, the form of God, he's not really talking about Jesus in his humanity. And he doesn't mean that Jesus was a superman who had simply God-like characteristics. He means that before Christ came and took flesh, he descended. When he descended, his form, his being, his essence was God. So Jesus did not come into existence. So we'll start with that. Jesus pre-existed as God. His form, his characteristics, his attributes were not things that made him like a God. These are the things that made him God. Jesus, in his own statements, claimed to be God. Now, this is really an amazing thing because there are people like the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, and on this particular statement, they don't really stand any differently than the Muslims, how that they could possibly believe that Jesus was a prophet or that Jesus was a good man. At the very best, with their doctrine, Jesus couldn't have been anything more than a false prophet and the worst liar that ever lived. And that is, if he claimed to be God and he was not God, then how could you believe anything that Jesus says? Well, now I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would please, to John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, uh, Jesus is having a conversation with the Jews... And the Jews asked him to tell them very plainly. They said, speak plainly to us and tell us that if you are the Christ, tell us that and tell us it plainly. Now, never mind that Jesus had said that over and over again, and he demonstrated it. But they said, tell us plainly. Now, look at verse number 24. This is John chapter 10. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So miracle after miracle and statement after statement, and yet the Jews said to him, tell us plainly. You know, I I really don't know how Jesus kept his cool and how he didn't really just go off on them and become totally exasperated when they keep asking him this. But Jesus didn't do that, and so he just tells them again. Look at verse number 30. He says, I and my Father are one. Now, obviously, Jesus did not mean that they were the same person because God the Father was right then in heaven, and Jesus was on earth doing the works of the Father. 
So what he means is that we are one in essence. And when Jesus said that, the Jews had no doubt in their mind what he was saying because they reacted to his saying in verse number 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? Well, now the Scriptures nail down exactly how the Jews interpreted Jesus' intent. There's no mistake about what Jesus was saying because in this very next verse it says, The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Now, there can't be any doubt about what Jesus was teaching. He told the people that he was God. Well, curiously, and deceptively, I might add, the Jehovah Witnesses know the implication of that statement. And so in their translation of Scripture, which no reputable translations do, they change the wording of this, just like they did in John chapter 1, verse 1. Now, notice here that the King James Version says, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. But in the New World translation of the Jehovah Witnesses, which has never been shown to be the product of any Greek scholar, either reputable or otherwise, here's what they say, and it should be on your screen there. Verse number 32, Jesus replied to them, I displayed to you many fine works from the Father. For which of those works are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, We are stoning you not for a fine work, but for blasphemy, even because you, although being a man, make yourself a god. Now notice there again that they say a god, and they put that little article A in front of it, just like they did in John 1 verse 1, and then they changed the big G to a little g. But Jesus taught that he was one in essence with God. He was God who came to the earth, and before he ever left the hallowed halls of heaven, he was God. He was in the form of God. He was one in essence with God, and in his nature, he was God. But Jesus has even more to say about his preexistence in the book of John. I want you to turn now, if you would, to John chapter 8. And this is where uh, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and he brings up the subject of Abraham and the prophets. Well, the Jews had built their entire religious system around Abraham and the prophets and, of course, around the laws of Moses. And so Jesus says something in this chapter that really makes these Jews just eye-popping mad. They ask Jesus in verse number 53, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? Now, that sounds kind of like what they were saying in chapter 10, Who are you? Who do you claim to be? Tell us plainly. Now look at verse number 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now interestingly there, when Jesus says my day, there are many people who believe that that's Jesus' reference to the incarnation. Let's go on here, verse number 57. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, he didn't say there, Before Abraham was, I was. But rather, Jesus used the present tense, and he says, Before Abraham was, I am. So do you know what Jesus is doing here? What he's doing is he's using the name of God. And he says, I am God, because I am is the name of God. And when God appeared to 
Moses in the burning bush. Moses didn't yet know who God was. And you remember the story that Moses asked God, he said, when I go and and speak to the children of Israel, whom shall I say sent me? In other words, he's asking God, what is your name? Tell me who's sending me. I'm going to give them your name. Well, here's what it, it says in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said, moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. Now listen, this is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. Now, if you look up there on the screen, you should see this. You see the word Lord, and the word Lord is in all caps. That's the word Jehovah. Jehovah means I am. That's Jehovah. So when Jesus said, before Abraham was I am, he's using a quotation from the Old Testament, and he's connecting his identity with the one who spoke in the burning bush. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, the Jews couldn't have missed that reference. Abraham was their great prophet. Moses was a great prophet. The laws that they kept in self-righteousness, those were the laws of Moses. So they didn't miss this. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He said that he was God. He claimed to be God just like he did in chapter 10. But let's look a little bit closely, more closely. We've seen recently in our study of Revelation that there is no mistaking there that Jesus pre-existed as God. So let's go over to Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, the proofs of the uh, deity of Christ and his pre-existence as God are unmistakable uh, in many places, but especially here in the book of Revelation. Now, this is in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 8. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now, Jesus' description there of himself is that he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. Well, everybody, I think, knows that Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so by saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, that would be equivalent to say, saying, I am the first and the last. Jesus said that in four different places in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, verse 11, he said, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Revelation 1.17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Revelation 2, verse 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And then in Revelation 22, verse 13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So first and last, first and last, first and last, those are the words that Jesus uses to describe himself. Now, do you know who used the very same description in the Old Testament? Listen to these words in Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Well, who's speaking there? Well, capitalized there again is the word Lord, so that is Jehovah. This is the eternally existent God. 
So this is not Michael the archangel. This is not a created being. This is the one who wrought it, the one who's always been here. He's the Lord Jehovah. And Jesus says of himself, I am the first and the last. Now that's what makes it so peculiar for the Jehovah Witness and the Mormon and the Muslims to say, well, yes, Jesus was a great prophet. He was a good man. He was really a great guy. When, in effect, with their very own words, the, the, the effect of their teaching really is that Jesus is either a liar or he's a crazed lunatic. Because Jesus said, I am God. If someone were to come into our church today and he stood up here on this platform and he said, I am God. I'm Jehovah. I, I existed from all eternity. I have no beginning or ending. I'm Alpha and Omega. If someone came into the church and said, all those things, what would we say? Oh, would we say, well, hallelujah, God sent us another prophet. I mean, he's so wise. God's given him wisdom, and everything that he says is true. It's right. He's really a great man. There's not one of us who would say that. We would say, this fellow is a lunatic. He's a liar. You can't believe a word that he says. And yet Jesus came proclaiming those very same things. He said, I am God. I have always existed And the Jehovah Witnesses and others say, well, what a great man that he was. What a great prophet, even though their very own doctrine says that Jesus was lying right through his teeth when he said it. Now, there's no mistaking about who Jesus is. And so that's what makes the incarnation so miraculous. This isn't a created being who comes in the form of another created being. This is not an angel that becomes a man. This is the essence of God Almighty who became a man. Well, how could that happen? How could, how could that possibly be? You may remember in preaching on this uh, uh, some time ago, I was preaching on the incarnation, and I related to you about a professor that my father had when he was in Bible college. And my, my father used to like to quote his words because he said, God immensity packed himself into the minute cell of a Galilean virgin. Friends, that is a miracle. It's a miracle we can't really understand. It's the greatest miracle that ever occurred. So Paul says that before the incarnation, he was in the form of God, meaning that Jesus was one in essence with God. He's one with the Father. He's one with the Holy Spirit. That is the Trinity of God, and Jesus is a part of that Trinity. But let's go a little bit further as we talk about this phrase, who being in the form of God, to show you that Jesus is equal With God. Jesus is equal with God. Now, you should have already made that assumption by what I've said. Things that are the same are equal. Jesus is the same as God. He pre existed as God, and we've seen the scriptures that prove that. And if things are the same, those things are equal. But I don't want you to be mistaken that Jesus is somehow lesser than the Father. And in the same vein, I don't want you to think that Jesus is lesser than the Holy Spirit or that the Holy Spirit is inferior either to the Father or the Son. But the lesson tonight is really not about the Holy Spirit, even though the Holy Spirit was absolutely indispensable in the Incarnation. It was the Holy Spirit that moved upon the Virgin Mary and then impregnated her with the sperm of God. But we're talking about Jesus because that's the focus of the passage in Philippians chapter 2. Now, this, this whole thing of Jesus being equal with God also poses a problem for the Jehovah Witnesses. And so what they have to do is they must alter the Scriptures concerning the equality of Jesus with the Father. 
Now, the Jehovah Witness does believe that Christ did indeed create the world, but he did that as a created being, and the power to do so was granted by the Father. Now, it's not that Jesus is equal to the Father, but that he created all things not by his own power and authority, but a power that was invested in him by a higher power. Now let's turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. Those of you that don't have thumb tabs in your Bible, and I'm not criticizing you if you do, but the Wednesday night crowd usually doesn't need those things. Colossians just a few more pages towards the back. And uh, here we see, uh, or from where we are in Philippians. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Who is the image, and this is talking about Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now look there at verse number 15. Who is the image of the invisible God? Well, that means that Jesus is the manifestation of the Father, which is another way that we prove his equality. Jesus said, I and my Father are one, and then also expresses the same thought that Jesus is one in essence that we saw in Philippians 2, verse number 6. He's in the form of God. Well, the great blessing of the incarnation is that Jesus was God's representative, and he came to this earth to do what Adam could not do, and also to undo what Adam did. I hope you understand what I'm saying there. So Jesus came to this earth, and the incarnation includes all of this kind, these different kinds of teaching, as we'll discuss next week. Uh, the, the, the incarnation and the descent of the Son of God led him all the way to the cross, and the descent... Uh, left him, uh, led him to the death of the cross, and I'll explain next week how even it was even lower than that. It really doesn't stop at the death of the cross, but there's something else involved in it as well. But what we're looking at right now is that Jesus is the essence of God, and he's equal with the Father. And he created the world not by a power that was granted to him as a lesser God. Now keep your Bible open there to Colossians chapter 1. And we'll see how the Jehovah Witnesses have to mutilate Colossians chapter 1 in order to prove that Jesus is not co-equal with the Father. Now here on your screen, on the screen you'll see this. This is the New World Translation of Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and upon the earth, the things visible and things invisible, no matter whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all other things, and by means of him all other things were made to exist. And he is the head of the body, the congregation. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he might become the one who is first in all things, because God saw good for all fullness to dwell in him. Well, that perversion speaks uh, pretty well for itself. The word other there is in brackets because they at least admit this, that that word is not there in the original language. And I suppose that it would be uh, just too noticeable 
to uh, not to put that in brackets, and it's not, you know, maybe it wouldn't be as easy to put in as slipping in a little article A and changing God to a, to a small g. This, this would be far more noticeable than that. So they leave it in there. But what they imply, of course, is that all other things were created by Christ, and in that they say that that means that Christ also was created. He's just the agent that God used to create other things. Well, folks, that's a perversion of the the highest magnitude. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, is one of the clearest statements in the Bible about the co-eternality and co-equality of the Father and the Son. Now, the Jehovah Witness knows that he has to get rid of that Scripture or his doctrine won't stand. I don't have time to go into an exposition of what all those Scriptures mean, but let me just point out to to you a, a few things here as we close the message tonight. In verse number 15, the Scripture says that he is the firstborn of every creature. Now, the Jehovah Witness uses that to say that it means that Jesus was the first one who was created. Now, that's not what Paul means because that would contradict Paul in other places and would contradict Jesus as well. But what it actually means when it says that he is the firstborn, that means that Christ is superior in position and in rank. The firstborn is the one to whom the inheritance belongs. He's the one who has the first position. It means that he's above all others. And that is exactly what the Scripture says about Jesus. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's above all others. Now, this is why that the Jehovah Witness has to start sticking in that word other into the text, beginning at verse number 16, because if firstborn does not refer to Jesus being a created being then verse number 16 would make sense. I mean, how could the first created thing be the creator of all things that are created? And so they have to put the word other in there because they believe that he created himself. Or or that otherwise, I should say, they would believe he creates himself. So they stick the word other in there to make that distinction. He's the creator of all other things being created himself. But what verse 16 really says is that Jesus is the author. He's the architect of all things. Now, there are two things that are brought out in verse number 16. Number one, Christ is the architect of all things. And Christ being the architect means that it was by his own inherent power, not by power vested in him by a greater being that things were created. Now, the second thing it shows us is that Christ is the agent in creation. Now, you'll notice in verse number 19 that the King James translators supplied the words, the Father. And that's why those words are in italics. That's for clarity. Because if you read the complete context of Colossians chapter 1, it shows that Christ is the one through whom redemption comes. In other words, that's his work in the Godhead. It's Christ's job to redeem. And then in cooperation with the Father in verses 12 through 14... Paul shows Jesus to be the agent also in creation. So he's the head of all creation, according to verse 17. He's the head of the church also in verse number 18. Now, if you skip down here to Colossians chapter 2, verse number 9, as as if it hadn't already been categorically stated that Jesus is equal with God the Father, here is a statement that's made that really shuts the lid on all the controversy. Colossians 2, verse 9 says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So in the incarnation, as well as in eternity, Jesus is the fullness of God. He's equal with God. 
But wouldn't you know it, the Jehovah Witness have to do something with this scripture as well, and so they have to destroy it. And so in their translation, or perversion, if you prefer, they say in verse number 9, because it is in him that all the fullness of the divine quality dwells bodily. So what they do here is they reduce power and equality and fullness to divine quality. Now, isn't that exactly what I said in the very beginning of the message? I said that some believe that Jesus was, came to this earth and just simply displayed some godly characteristics. Well, folks, Noah showed godly characteristics. Moses had godly characteristics. David had godly characteristics. Paul had godly characteristics. But in none of them did all the fullness of God dwell bodily. Now, that is the difference with Jesus. He's the essence of God. He's preexistent as God before the foundation of the world. He became a man, and he was still God when he became a man. He's still God today, and he'll be God forever. This is what he said again in Revelation 1, verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Jesus stepped down from the throne of heaven, and he was in the form of God. He is God in his essence. Now, next week we come back, and we'll finish up those verses down there, uh, down to verse number 8, and we'll talk about more about this descent of the Son of God as he came to this earth to be our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word and for the time that we have tonight. Lord, we, we pray that we might look at the truth of your word and see who Jesus really is and that we can refute others when they claim that the Son of God is not really God but is simply a created being. Lord, uh, help us to know these scriptures better and to understand how to put this together to prove who you are even as you stated it yourself. Thank you, Lord, for those who come here tonight. Bless this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.